0: Adam, have you ever had an improvised story element that was introduced into your campaign by a player, something you had no idea that was going to uh, come at you, that became a campaign defining story element?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You did it to me. We introduced your character into a campaign you joined partway through, and you came with a built-in bad guy. And that bad guy was a defining like nemesis, was the big bad evil guy. For in, the next campaign. In the next yeah. campaign, right? And it, he was in the shadows, in the background. You guys never really ran into him, but he was plotting and, and yeah. shit in the background. Showed up in the last moments of the last session, and that launched the next campaign. And I ran with that to, like, the very last episode. You guys you guys killed him.
0: Yeah. And, like, we, we killed him... Without any sort of uh, possibility of like,
1: we erased this guy's soul. <laughs> you guys <laughs> got him possessed by your ally ghost and he walked him into the river Styx to wipe him fucking clean. Yeah. You guys, like, and I was not expecting that it would go that way and it was brilliant. And you guys were all so ready to fucking hate him. It's a Mimic. The Roundtable Dungeons & Dragons Discussion Podcast, where you never know what you're going to get. Welcome to part one in our discussion on common plot lines that will help loosen up your writer's block. As the pandemic numbers settle down here and we prepare for restrictions to lift, we've blown the dust off our campaign notes and started thinking again about how to craft story and conflict. I'm Adam, and with me today is Dan, and this episode is called Storylines, Drama with Trauma. Nice. You're like, I, I, I. you're right, I
0: do like the rhyming ones the best. So I'm a simple man.
1: <laughs> there are a lot of different ways to plot out a story, and let me start off by saying that whatever works for your table works. But sometimes you want to make a request of your dungeon master for a certain kind of plot line, or you, as a DM, are looking to breathe some new life into your campaign. We see a lot of discussions online about joke storylines that come from puns, tweaking lackluster published material... And balancing railroads fun houses and sandboxes. There are conversations about how to keep players engaged and characters balanced and of course homebrew theories and character crafting. But on this podcast we talk a lot about how DD is collaborative storytelling and no one person controls everything. So let's sit down and look at story itself. Story has two popular definitions. The first is an account of imaginary or real people and events told for entertainment. And the second is an account of past events in someone's life or in the evolution of something. Let's boil it down to something a little less unwieldy so we can apply it to D&D. Yes, please. For our purposes, story is the evolution of imaginary people and events for entertainment. The key words here are evolution, imaginary, and entertainment. Evolution is important because there has to be a sense of progress and consequence to the decisions being made around the table. It also implies that there are general rules, but not necessarily a right or wrong way to proceed. Imaginary is important because the situations we will be exploring are born of creativity and imagination within the general rules that evolution hints at. And entertainment is important because it guides our decisions from the outside and gives us a measuring stick of what feels good and right to absorb as an audience. And because this is a collaborative story, everyone involved is part of the audience, even the Dungeon master. Remember, for us, story is the evolution of imaginary people and events for entertainment. Let me say all that crap again in a different light. For those of you who are philosophy majors, think about it like this. Imagination is the id, evolution is the ego, and entertainment is the superego. But Adam, you're crying out. I just want inspiration for my writer's block, or I want a fun new story to tell. I know, I hear you. But it's important to understand how story works so that we don't get distracted by puns which are imagination and entertainment, but not evolution, or railroady plot hooks which are evolution, but not necessarily entertaining or imaginative for everyone around the table. To really grasp the idea of storytelling in a collaborative sense, as a dungeon master who is supposed to have a handle on all of the opportunities available, you need to listen to the players and slide in a good story hook when you hear a good opening like Dan mentioned in the cold open. And I know you've heard lots of bad stories from players, especially when getting a backstory that doesn't offer anything inspiring or when dealing with a basic archetypal character that hits only one note over and over again. Looking at you edgelords. You need to listen to your players and know what different kinds of stories there are out there so that when your players stumble upon something golden you can nudge a subplot or side quest or even an NPC into the bigger narrative. But while some ideas may seem intriguing or funny or even boring remember the three things that we're looking for here the opportunity to evolve the characters the opportunity to inspire imaginations and the opportunity to find the maximum level of common entertainment it's going to be different for everyone and oftentimes it takes the blending of two or three ideas together to really strike gold but i hope the next two episodes will grease up the gears in your machine and help add depth to your dungeons and dragons tables and players you can find story opportunities too. It doesn't just have to be DMs. Never be afraid to communicate with your dungeon master about what you would like to see. So Dan, I yeah. got a question. Sure. What's your favorite kind of story arc? The one that you are always excited to see in a movie. I got a 10. I got an 11. Honestly, I don't know why we roll dice. I, yeah, I just <laughs> always go last. Um, This, honestly, for me, it comes down to the hero overcoming the, the personal odds like i grew up on that in absolutely everything in the 80s and 90s yeah and then and it's usually that the edgelord rogue the raphael character yeah right that that strikes out out on his own and then he comes back in
0: yeah realizes that his family and everything were you know the thing that was keeping him strong the entire time is like my friends are my strength my yeah and stuff. they yeah.
1: overcome some personal issue and then become strong and save the day in the end exactly right? for me the thing i uh
0: really like is the redemption arc it's, it's kind of associated with you, but I want to see a character who is, uh, based on his circumstances, been beat down and has hit that rut. And then has to redeem these uh, things in his past that he has committed to show where, he's been, uh, where he is now from where he was. It's that uh, Noah's Ark level of thing where it's like, you made some mistakes, but those have enabled you to do what you need to do
1: in the future it's part right? of the
0: journey right so uh, it's the redemption arc that's the that's the story uh beat i like more than anything else
1: well those are story arcs not so much beats as they are yes, arcs yeah. right we can take these general archetypes and then depending on which beats that we use we can get uh radically different storylines but they follow the same general trajectory mm-hmm. so here's something you might not know speaking of the different beats. In 1895, a French writer named Georges Poulti came up with a comprehensive list of possible stories called the 36 Dramatic Situations. He credited the work to an Italian author, Carlo Gozzi, as being a major inspiration and his list is used by authors and storytellers all over the world, but very few people in D&D. Now we're going to bring it to you by the broad strokes and in layman's terms, because we've got limited time here. Yeah. But if you want to learn more, go buy a translation of the 36 dramatic situations. Hopefully this episode should be an episode that kicks some of the cobwebs loose by using these. I'm going to go through each of them simply and we're going to provide an example for a story opportunity within Dungeons and Dragons. I'm sure that you will be able to come up with a ton as well, but feel free to steal or adapt anything we come up with. And remember to keep your eyes out for ideas that will include the entire mission statement of the evolution of imaginary people and events for entertainment. Let's do it. So there are 36 dramatic situations here. Most of them have an opponent, but I'm going to take you back to the eighth grade English class uh-huh. and remind you of the three kinds of stories, that there are the three kinds of conflicts. Man versus man, man versus environment, and man versus self. It is really difficult to set up the man versus self conflict in d d But usually a good dilemma is enough to explore those themes at your table. I will talk about that a little bit more next week. Sure. That leaves us this week with man versus man and man versus environment, which I like to reframe for D&D as conflict against a thinking enemy and conflict against a scenario. Okay. As we go through the 36 situations, think about the fact that your party or a party member can act as an individual entity. And they could be the guards or the people sneaking past the guards or the people being guarded. And you can replace any one of these entities with a scenario. The guards could be replaced with a trap or a locked door. The entity circumventing the barrier could be poison gas or the passage of time. Sure. And the guarded one could be treasure or a secret. You see how this one basic situation can spin out in many different ways. So I've monologued enough. Let's get to the discussion. Okay. (laughs) Okay. The first one is called supplication. This requires three parties. A victim who is begging for mercy, someone who has power over them, and someone with authority over both of them. The more doubtful the authority figure is of what action to take, the more drama you can extract from the situation. So uh, this is going to be your story beat of like the corrupt
0: nobleman, the corrupt king, the evil overlord. Not necessarily like your big bad evil guy, but, but some like middling level guy who has been ruling with an iron fist and your main like party quest giver is going to be like the farmer that has been dealing with this guy for so long and is bearing the weight of taxes or or whatever those are
1: right it, it could be that it could be simpler than that you could have a goblin on the side of the road begging for a stay of execution oh yeah, yeah. and then the man standing over him with the sword saying no you stole that's that's a punishable offense here. You're just a goblin. I will kill you. And your party then is interjected in. Yeah. As the authority to determine whether or not to do this. Mm-hmm. Or you could have an authority come in and stop the party from executing the goblin. <laughs> or you could have an authority member come in and say to the executioner, why are we condemning this party? Yeah. And have the party have to beg for their lives, right? So there are there are lots of different ways to look at it. Um, but you're right. You can go big scope or little scope. Yeah, like Yeah. The second one is called deliverance. Again, this requires three parties. Someone who has made a mistake, someone who is enacting justice on this person, and someone who rescues the first person from the threatening party. So, for example, someone steps on a landmine. The landmine itself is enacting justice on the person for trespassing, and the bomb diffusal expert is going to rescue them. You'll notice there's no overarching authority figure here.
0: Mm. This is actually really interesting because this could be uh, within your party. A lot of this drama comes, say, like a kobold has accidentally set off or your party has accidentally set off a kobold trap with one of the people suffering and they see the kobold who's probably like a party member npc then like saying sorry and running and now you have to do this kind of weird three-way uh rp situation where you've got one player going hey it was a mistake the other player saying no nah, i'm gonna kill the kobold now he's going to die and you as
1: the dm going Uh, The kobold runs and leaves a bear trap behind him. (laughs) So the next one is crime pursued by vengeance. This one is pretty straightforward. This is when one person commits a crime and is clearly going to get away with it. Someone else seeks their own brand of justice in the name of vengeance. This is your typical assassination or assassin plot,
0: right? Your party comes upon an assassination in progress or stops an assassination at that moment and... The assassin is beyond your party's ability to capture, right? That's what this kind of plot line is.
1: I also feel like this is when um, an NPC successfully lies to another one and passes their deception check. Sure. And yeah. the party knows better. Oh, like like a, um, a advisor lying to a king. And the party's just like, we're going to murder the shit out of that guy later. Yeah, yeah. The fourth one is very similar. It's called Vengeance, Taken for Kin upon Kin. This is a complicated one, but it's fairly common and can be found in stories like Hamlet. When there are three people of a close-knit group, usually family, and one harms another. The third person then punishes the guilty party in the name of justice. This is not out of vengeance. This is, we don't do that to each other.
0: Uh, This is your traditional uh, thieves guild, like thieves don't steal from thieves, honor among thieves, that level of thing. This can also be the torture elements to, like, a paladin order trying to, uh, like, gain information about someone who they found was a double agent within their order. It's like, how far down that
1: line do you go with your paladins torturing information out of one of their own, right? The next one is called Pursuit, and this one is easy. You already know it. A person is on the run from Punishment... And they're innocent of any wrongdoing. As much as I want to say, like, a good example of this would be
0: someone stealing the bread from the market and making their way th- through. The Aladdin. The Aladdin, yeah. right? Because there's that sense of morality. We're talking about someone who is... Actually innocent. Aladdin still stole. Uh, yeah, right? So we're looking at someone who's actually innocent. This is your frame job. This is
1: your... Harrison Ford and the Fugitive. This yeah. This is Dr. Uh, Richard Kimball.
0: Yeah, right? Like, this, this is going to be... If you want to put this on a and d spin, this is your fighter or barbarian no this is your uh lycanthropy uh storyline
1: oh absolutely
0: right like someone in the town has lycanthropy and at midnight loses consciousness becomes a werewolf murders a bunch of sheep and one person and then wakes up in a field of their blood butt naked right congratulations you now have this person who is going to be blamed for everything, but really they're innocent. They're they're a victim of circumstance
1: more than anything else. You also get this hard-baked into the tiefling and half-elf story. Yes, yeah, for sure. The sixth one is disaster. Again, this is pretty straightforward. When a person with incredible power loses that power to an enemy and is
0: defeated. Um, We actually see this in one of the adventure paths in uh, Curse of Strayed with, uh, um, spoiler alert, Kynan
1: losing his shit and wandering Barovia, right? Yeah, uh, this is specifically when someone takes it from them. Yeah, the whole Argenvoss storyline is the same way here. Yes. Yeah. The seventh one is falling prey to cruelty or misfortune. This is when an unfortunate person falls prey to either general misfortune or a person who has control over them. What I like to do is turn this on the party. When I
0: use this one, I like to turn this on the party and have... This be the way I show the party their actions have consequences. So they've just gone through this big uh, battle
1: with their... No, uh, this isn't justice. This is purely misfortune or cruelty.
0: Oh, I l- hear me out. The party has had this big thing fighting and stopping this attack into the city of some sort. There's been this collateral damage. And now your party is interacting with some of the peasantry or whoever, the commoner folk Who then says well I did have a home there it's now a crater where you you know the fight and I, I don't blame you guys you guys stopped this I'm alive I got my life we're good but the consequences of their actions in terms of the grand
1: scale of things this is a way you could show them that as well. The next one is called revolt this is when a tyrant is plotted against by someone with lesser power. This is pretty much your entire D&D campaign. Yeah, yeah. Right up until the final battle. That one's pretty straightforward.
0: Yeah, this this is your...
1: Uh, pretty much any fantasy storyline has this. But you have it from both sides. You have the villain looking to take over power from the people that are in charge, but then the party looking to take power from the villain, villain as yeah, well. Yeah, Before we get on to the rest of them, let's jump out for a quick break. Did you hit record? Yeah, go ahead. So... As some of you have noticed, obviously, Dan and I launched a bit of an informal side project where we go through one of the Dungeons & Dragons publications at a time and determine the pros and cons and our overall thoughts. And the first one we did was Icewind Dale, Rime of the Frostmaiden.
0: We went over almost every page, covering moderate spoilers for the adventure without giving the ending away. We covered things that interest players or maybe useful to Dungeon Masters to get inspiration
1: from. I always love going through the monsters and the items and the player options.
0: I really enjoyed seeing all the different forms of the Frostmaiden and investigating everything about her frosty lair
1: to her maiden head. Dan? What the fuck, man? I need you to take these commercials way more seriously. I show up every time with the utmost professional attitude. <sighs> ah! What? You? Professional? Yes. Professional what? Dick? At least I'm not an amateur dick. I don't. What? I. What? What? What is your problem? What's an amateur dick? Well, I don't know. Obviously, by definition, it's a dick that doesn't get paid. Does your dick normally get paid? I mean, it
0: should. Well, I'm not sure that Canada's ready to just the penny, Adam. Go fuck
1: yourself, Dan. <laughs> it should be getting paid in pounds, if you get what I mean. You can pound pounds. it on your own
0: time. We're trying to record a commercial.
1: Okay, anyway, dick, we're going to periodically continue working our way through new releases as they come. Gross. As well as discussing some of the published material from Wizards of the Coast that has already hit the shelves. There's a lot of info out there for 5th edition, but not every DM or player knows which book to pick up next, or what to expect from an adventure module. After all, there's some great additions to the library, and then there's, well, Rick and Morty versus D&D. This series is going to be sporadic and unscheduled, so keep your eyes out for these, and let us know if you agree with our assessments. We hope that you'll be able to use the series as a guideline for which books deserve your attention for your own personal needs as a DD and d player, but keep in mind that they're going to be full of moderate spoilers for the adventures, and they aren't meant to tear into specific mechanics or stat blocks.
0: As we go on, you'll be able to find previous Legend Lore episodes in a playlist on our YouTube channel, or check out the episode guide to see what books we've already covered by looking at the post on r slash it's a mimic on
1: Reddit. Now... Let's get back to the episode, shall we? Fuck, one of these days we're going to record a normal fucking commercial. I highly doubt it. Well, whose fault is that? Mostly yours. Disagree. At this point, I'm sure you'll notice that most of these dramatic situations aren't full-fledged stories themselves, but they're a nugget inside that spawns story. There are the conflicts and catalysts that, with a little imagination, can push the characters forward to take action. We end up with a plot when enough of these actions are strung together with the basic consistency of outcomes and consequences like Dan was talking about. And an interesting plot, an entertaining one, is one that captures the imagination and that is a good story. Also, I'm sure you noted that the first eight on the list had to do generally with authority, justice, and punishment, whether it was deserved or not. Yeah. Generally speaking, this next group focuses on possessions. Number nine is the daring enterprise. A daring enterprise is when someone exhibits their courage by taking away an object or item from an opponent that is overpowering them.
0: This is your uh, duel in Princess Bride. I'm going to disarm you and I'm not left-handed, right? Like that's that's what I see with this.
1: Uh, this is Golem getting the ring back. Yeah. There are all sorts of different ways to do this. Sometimes it is just taking a phylactery from a lich. The next one is an abduction. This is pretty simple. It's right in the name. This is when you take away someone from their guardian specifically.
0: I mean, this yes, someone. I mean, this could go either a good way. You're rescuing someone f- who has been captive. This could go the bad way. You are taking someone from their home, from their comfort, because of whatever reason.
1: Number 11 is the enigma. This is when an interrogator creates and presents a problem to someone with the express reasoning that so that they can help the person get closer to their goals. A poor man's version of this is when someone plays devil's advocate in a hypothetical argument. A standard one that we see is the Sphinx's riddle.
0: Yeah, I mean, any sort of uh, mentor or training montage that you have. Especially with tough love. Yeah, right. Um, This is your
1: grizzled war veteran that's got a special place in his heart for you, but he's never going to show it to you. The one after that is Obtaining. This one has two kinds of meanings, so it's like a special bonus. It can either be when someone is trying to get an object from someone who is denying them, or it can be when two parties want the same thing, but an authority is in charge of choosing who gets it. Either way, this is about wanting an object and having the object's fate lie entirely out of your control.
0: Look at the Wisdom of Solomon here. Where he had the two farmers arguing with him about whose sheep it is. And uh, Solomon was like, well, just cut it in half then. And whoever, you know, was the one who had the more personal reaction got the sheep. Because obviously they cared more about it. Whereas the other person just wanted to make sure that person didn't get it. Doing that level of stuff and putting that into your D&D campaigns. um, Often amongst party members, I would hazard against that dilemma of, okay... You have an artificer and a wizard. Here's your plus to
1: intelligence item. Who gets it? Hmm? But it can be a little bit more simple than that too. And it could literally be a person standing between you and the MacGuffin yeah. behind them. Yeah. Right. This is just about one person imposing their will, denying you from getting the item or object that you want. Yeah. So after the idea of possessions, we come upon a few of the most malevolent options on the list. And most of them revolve around conspiracy and betrayal. Remember, your party can fill any role in these narratives. It's also worth noting that a lot of these themes and plots can be just as effective with lesser extremes. The enigma that we spoke about a moment ago could have been a simple riddle with an answer that can help the party later in the dungeon. A revolt could just be one party member trying to take over as the face of the party for a little while. You don't have to stick to these extremes of life and death. And keep that in mind as we push forward. And that's good because things are about to get super freaking malicious (laughs) So the next one is called the Enmity of Kin. And this is when members of a family or a close group conspire against another member with malevolent intent.
0: This to me is the phase of a cult stepping from just a group of like-minded individuals to a let's summon in our elder god. Right? There's going to be that one guy who's all like, hey, I found this ancient book. Like, follow me, blah, blah, blah. And the other cult members are like, "Uh, hold up. And then go to your party for help. That's a storyline you could do with this.
1: I honestly think we see it far more often than that with brand new players playing rogues. My character would steal from you. Oh, God, yes. The one after that is Rivalry of Kin. This is when one person chooses one person over another. And the tension that leads to this moment. This is not about the actual outcome, but the tension building. Think about it like a love triangle that is about to get resolved. Joel
0: Schumacher made a great movie starring George Clooney and uh, Chris O'Donnell and a whole bunch of other people. They had this scene where Batman had to choose between Nicole Kidman or whoever that was and Chris O'Donnell. You have the Riddler sitting
1: there like laughing at this choice. That's what you have here. You get that all the time. The Green Goblin doing it with the busload of kids. Yeah, this, this, this is a
0: common like superhero trope.
1: Uh, you uh, can't where is everyone, she? right? Yeah, so, yeah. This is how 2 faces made it. The next one is the murderous adultery. This is when two adulterers conspire to kill a spouse who is being betrayed. This one's a little hard to inject into D&D unless you're hiring the party to kill someone or you're hiring them to save someone. Yeah, um,
0: honestly, it's... I mean, you're right. It, it's really hard to put this into your campaigns, but because we experience D&D and it's a world where ghosts exist... You could definitely inject this more. Having Oh, they're already murdered. They're already murdered, right? And and they, they want
1: you to complete the set, right? Like that level of stuff. I mean, you could have some fun with it. The last one in this malicious segment is called Madness. This is when a madman goes insane and wrongs a person. But be careful with this one. Remember our conversations about Session Zeros and mental health in previous episodes. If you are... Playing Call of Cthulhu and stuff like this as well. This is going or to, you're using the optional sanity rules. For yeah, B&D. going
0: into like legit mental psychoses. Again, you're right. Look at your uh, session zeros, but it doesn't have to be that. We talked about uh Kuatoa, right? You're gonna see that here, where like a Kuatoa will stand there and he'll talk to you face to face for a moment, and then I don't know. The current in the water will change. A smell will waft in on the wind, and all of a sudden he's summoning an elder god. It can get weird real quick with this. You can also, fun ways.
1: You can also get into this with um, the Unseelie Court. Yo, oh, yes. or Any um, fae you could get or into Or a lot of aberrations. Mm-hmm. Setting aside the idea of malicious intent for a moment, let's talk about accidental loss and sacrifices that characters are forced to make. For this section, it's easy to focus on the evolution of consequence... But remember that the story also has to be entertaining for your players. For some, increased stakes and tension is entertaining. For others, it just feels like punishment. Read your table and listen to your players. Don't be afraid to check in with them during breaks and between sessions. So the first one in this group is called Fatal Imprudence. Someone who loses an important item or wrongs a victim, either by neglect or ignorance. Your wizard fireballed the NPC. Your barbarian throws axe across the... You you roll a crit failure and your dungeon master says you drop and lose your rope.
0: Yeah, there's so many things. And nothing pisses off a player more than losing one of their
1: items. So again, handle it with delicacy. After that is involuntary crimes of love. When two lovers have unknowingly broken a taboo through their romantic relationship and someone reveals it to them. This is the main dramatic tension in the first part of Romeo and Juliet. A good D&D example of this would be when you fall in love with like a hag or a succubus. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, the, so this is the Terry storyline. Well, <laughs> and then
1: they fall in love back. Oh, that's cool. The one after that would be slaying of kin unrecognized. You see this one all the time on television. And I used it to mess with Grady in his episode of The Many Roads to Amelia. This is when one person kills another only to discover that it's a beloved family member or friend.
0: Yeah, this is the figuring out that the NPC that you've had as a friend the entire time is part of a s- secret order or something. Oh, no,
1: no, no. This is when you kill the guy in the robes and then pull the hood back and discover that's your NPC. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's it, you're on the right track, but it's flipped. It's the other way around. Um, the next one is self-sacrifice for an ideal. This one may seem pretty straightforward, but it's got an extra little bit of gravitas to it when you stop to think about it. Of course, I'm sure you're all familiar with the age-old trope of sacrificing one's well-being or life in the name of their ideal, but this equation isn't quite complete. The end of this story is that another party has to accept the sacrifice. There is a sentient willpower accepting these sacrifices and providing payoff. And this is the thing that bothers the shit out of me in Avengers Endgame. Oh. In Infinity War. Gamora and Black Widow sacrificed themselves. To whom? How did that release the stone? Who gave that up? Who set these rules in motion? Yeah, they never really established that, hey? Usually in D&D, it's going to be a god or a demon lord or something. Yeah. But you could even have it be, kill that guy to save this this person over here. You can have someone with low status force your hand. Yeah, for sure. The next one is self-sacrifice for kin. This is really similar, but the motivation is based around rescuing or benefiting a family member or person close to you instead of an ideal.
0: Yeah, this is this, this is what the, Hawkeye
1: like, tried to do.
0: Yeah, right. Uh, this is like giving up your kidney so that someone else could have that, right? Like there's so many things. This is uh, in D&D, this would be giving up a important magical item or important boon to save a party member.
1: Oh, this is specifically about giving yourself up. yeah this is you guys run yeah, I'll but hold them back you, you,
0: you try to tell a barbarian that an axe isn't an extension of himself <laughs> sure fair enough but honestly
1: this in my head this is a fly you fools yeah yeah fair enough the next one is all sacrificed for passion this is when a person usually a lover gives up everything for their love often unwisely this is clearly displayed at the end of Romeo and Juliet
0: yeah this is this is a bit harder to do around a uh, around a
1: table for D&D I find this is a really shitty way to pull the rug out from underneath your players the unwisely part when the when the bard falls in love and then it turns out to be the the succubus, yeah, right, and then uh-oh, I mean, you did
0: this sort of by making one of the players fall in love with a brass dragon, but that didn't necessarily go too poorly, oh, and it went poorly enough, it went poorly enough uh in in, in her regard. She straight up sacrificed herself for the player at one point um, near this big end scene, climactic end battle. Um, He got stuck with a half dragon egg.
1: Hey, that my character looked after. Okay, so number 23 is the necessity of sacrificing loved ones. Sometimes there is no other option but to sacrifice a loved one. This one is particularly heartbreaking and is what I think of when I separate good dungeon masters from bad ones. Good DMs arrange scenarios where players have to weigh the consequences of saving their beloved NPCs. A bad dungeon master slays a character's family and drops the news on the player after the fact for what they consider dramatic effect. I think you handle this well. Like I had a whole daughter
0: plot line with uh, Lockie, yeah. um, my, my gnome. I think you handle this very, very well in that entire process because uh, it, his lockie's entire goal was saving his daughter and then the moment he saved his daughter he had to basically come up with this decision like does he save his daughter or does he save a group of people it was a whole trolley problem just now you have lockie where that one person's incredibly important to lockie but not really anybody else
1: and additionally on top of that you tried to have it both ways and lost a bunch of people including my daughter including your daughter yeah at which point i was able to transition that Into your daughter out for vengeance as a revenant coming back. And then you had to make the choice, do I support her in that or not?
0: And then later on, I believe I sacrificed myself so that she could come back as a full version of herself and live a happy life. But Lockie, who had went
1: through this massive redemption arc, now had to be a vampire lord. Which is exactly the same kind of horror that killed his daughter in the first place. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, I miss Lockie. Oh, you'll fight him again. Don't worry. Uh, yeah. Uh, and you'll be playing him and it will be weird. I, I haven't decided what kind of Jamaican accent I'm going to do for it then. Uh, oh, it'll probably be South African. <laughs> uh, at this point, the list shifts into the realm of love, which is a very specific kind of having and wanting. Love is a sticky situation, both in Dungeons and Dragons and in the backseat of Kyle Shaganwagon. Mm. You don't have to focus on romantic love even though most of these examples do. A lot of storytellers like to focus on love subplots because they're easy to understand and have emotional payoffs. But you can take any one of the following dramatic situations, change the nature of the relationship, and find a compelling conflict and plotline. The first one is called Rivalry of Superior and Inferior. This is when two rivals square off against each other And the best man or woman wins, thereby winning the prize. In older classic literature, you often see the prize be a tournament or the hand of a fair maiden. Mm -hmm. Well, we've evolved now. And while the old themes may be attractive for the sake of nostalgia and historical accuracy, be careful about handing out romantic interests as prizes. It's 2021. It is time to grow up. I had this issue you mentioned earlier, the brass dragon. I had a character or a player at the table who was playing a barbarian, who was very much, I drink beer and I have a big swinging cod. Yeah. I swing my axe as much as I swing my junk. And he wanted the most attractive NPC that came up in a caravan of people they were escorting, who was this little blonde scholar girl. And he was very much, I'm going to seduce her and whatnot. And she did not give in to him. Every time that he would do something, I'd make him roll a charisma check. Mm Mm-hmm and he failed about as much as he succeeded and started to get mixed messages from her. Over time, they would spend more and more time around the campfire during downtime, but she would always say, well, thanks very much, have a good night, and up and leave. This went on for months until finally, when they settled down somewhere, she decided to stay with the party and not move on because of him, and that flirtation actually kicked off and the two of them ended up in a relationship. It was so much more rewarding mm-hmm. than any other way around it. But the thing is, he was up against Terry's character as a fighter in the first couple of sessions of this. So the two of them were both like, oh, little blonde girl, huh? And they were like competing about it. And then I distracted Terry with that CrossFit half-orc. So, <laughs> um, so he like totally went off in that direction. But for a moment there, there was this real tension of which one of us is going to score the girl. Not knowing that neither of them are going to score the girl based off of your roles. You're going to have to put some time and effort and thought into this. Prove to me that you are a hero, not just in name and violence. You kind of flip uh
0: the gender roles on this on its head as well with Irvindale and Megan's character. Uh, oh yeah, I forgot about that. Right? And and the the funny part about that is Irvindale was like this
1: uh, attractive, well-meaning, like just... He he was the half elf on the pirate ship that just was there to be kind of like a chip counselor. Yeah. And like you just had a tough fight. Sit down, let me rub your shoulders, tell me all about it. Are you Every, okay? like Terry and I hated this motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> just and, could not
0: stand him. But like the other two players at the table, uh, Megan being one of them, were girls and they were like, he's not so bad. Like, what's wrong? What's wrong with him? And like Megan actually like started diving into having a relationship with him. And then uh, we voted to sacrifice him
1: to bring in Demogorgon onto the plane. So, I mean... Well, that was interesting because Terry in a different character was also flirting with Megan's character. He was kind of half serious, right? Like yeah. He was just just being weirdly intimate and and it was a big joke. But then Irvindale came on the scene and suddenly Terry wasn't joking anymore. Yeah. Especially because the only... Thing, you guys are so suspicious that he was going to be evil. Oh,
0: there was... Yeah, you but you had... There was so many, like, little hints of, like, uh, you know, weird side eyes. And, like, this guy is just so good. There's got to be... Some, like, there's... I, I, and, like, this was the campaign where, like, guys, moral
1: ambiguity is this campaign. And here comes this hero character. I gave you the shining beacon. And the only things about him were... My only notes were he has a plus one to every roll. He has advantage on every roll. And he will always do what is right for every character.
0: Um, as a side little story, at one point in time, uh, my character was messing around with the, like, god of nature, of what it was. Just, like, the idea of nature personified, right? And a lot of that had some divination aspects to it. And one of the things you said was there was this bright, shining light that was the one hero of the realm. Yes. Right? Right? And you said that this was like the entire realm was locked in shadow, except for this one bright shining light moving through. This was after Irvindale had died. And you're like, and we're like, really? Just the one? And you said to us, well, there was two, but you sacrificed him to summon Demogorgon in just to like twist that dagger a little (laughs) bit more. And we're like, you son of a bitch. And then when we met the hero, we're like, yeah, okay, fine. That makes sense. We got a picture of the dude on our wall right now. Yeah. But, like, it's just like th- that uh, tool as a DM to just be like, and you all fucked up. And here's, I'm just going to make you
1: really regret it six months down the line. Man, I absolutely love that callback. But let's get into, let's get back into the list. Um, number 25 here is adultery. This one is simple. It's adultery. Hey. This is when two lovers conspire against a spouse who is deceived. You may hand wave this as a duh moment, but stop and think about the dramatic implications here. If you've ever been cheated on, you'll recognize that the part that stings the most isn't the fact that someone else was rubbing their naughty bits on your partner. It's the sneaking, the lying, and the planning that is a deeper betrayal. I have been cheated on, and the shock of the act itself wears off in time. But I keep coming back to the idea that my partner had to put on their shoes, walk to their car, drive to his house, park the car, check themselves in the mirror, walk up to the house, and knock on the door. And every single moment of that journey was willful, conscious betrayal. So when you think about adultery in D&D, think about the conspiracy behind it. Session zero, session zero, session zero. Right? Like, I, I, I cannot say enough...
0: This is going to be raw for a lot of people. It absolutely will. Right. So um, if you want to bring in a storyline that has echoes of this, make sure, especially like players who are going through a bitter breakup or whatever it is, make sure you've kind of, at least ambiguous, because I know you don't want to give away your plot, but like have, have a way to get out of this, have a ripcord.
1: Well, the other thing that I will do as well is have that level of conspiracy be against a sibling. Yeah. Or a child or a parent or something else. So that we're still dealing with the idea of conspiracy against a loved one.
0: Yeah. I like using this uh, storyline as a way to build interest into two NPCs more than an NPC and a player character.
1: Oh, yeah. I like that as well.
0: Right? So like the trusted merchant couple that you've been with for eight levels suddenly the husband is uh, far more distant or the wife is far more distant or however that relationship goes, right? And your party discovers that uh, the not by any enchantments or anything, just by his own active will, the husband has dallied,
1: right? But this is DD too. You can use enchantment to really muddy the waters on Oh, well. yeah. D- succubuses. They ex- suck a They exist for a reason. Okay, so the next one is called Crimes of Love. Back at number 18, we discussed the tension of when two lovers unknowingly break a taboo with their love. This is when the two lovers knowingly break a taboo with their romantic relationship. Good examples of this are when Romeo knows better, but he goes to see Juliet anyway. And, well, all that nastiness between Jamie and Cersei. Yeah. This is also a good time to point out that the story of Romeo and Juliet starts with one dramatic situation and seamlessly transitions into another and then another this is that evolution of outcomes and consequences that i mentioned at the beginning mm-hmm. but also
0: when your party are the ones seducing a married person or there are some well this uh, one is class a class level they're like some there's some classes here as well like an elf loving a drow an, an elf loving a drow or a commoner loving a noble right or a noble loving a commoner the other way around right like
1: this is iconic for a reason and is great to throw in your storylines. If you want to dabble with the love subplots, getting into drow society and just the toxic, toxic way that it's laid out is a great way of really graying the lines on that.
0: Yeah, I mean, they're changing what drow are now. I mean, by stock level of the matriarchy oh, yeah, 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 yeah. and the
1: sacrifice. The of men. The Menzo
0: level drow.
1: Yeah. yeah, And because it's all flipped as far as the genders go, yep. it's interesting to see it and to watch your players react and maybe think about shit they wouldn't have thought about otherwise. Not that I suggest that you teach people social lessons at D&D. <laughs> but I move on. Number 27, discovery of the dishonor of a loved one. This is when one person discovers that someone they loved has done something wrong and brought dishonor to their kin. We've been talking about lovers for a little while now, but you can frame this in any number of ways. You could discover a parent's secret shame or a sibling's dishonorable actions.
0: I actually just did this in my last session that I DM'd with my players. And I uh, they're an established party. They've done well together. They've done a lot of good. And they just discovered that one of the members was used to be a pirate and his crew ran the ship of that they have now hired to take them around. It's a pirate based campaign, but they're good characters. So they, they walked up to this camp where there's a bunch of slaughtered pirates around and they're like gathering them around. And then the one character starts to recognize them and he starts panicking. And then the paladin character goes, wait a minute. The, they were the, the guys on the boat. They told us about these guys. And like, I have this coin that shows like, and, and they went, oh shit. As a, around the table, they were just like, oh my God, what's going to happen? I'm like, well, what we're going to do is end the session there have fun with that little revelation and I
1: walked away and I'm so pleased with it. So pleased. <laughs> Number 28 on the list is Obstacles of Love. This instance is when two lovers face an obstacle together. Back to our Romeo and Juliet story, this is when they make the decision to be together and run away. Remember, not all obstacles are meant to be overcome.
0: This is going to breed some really, really good role-playing with your party, especially if... There's that interparty relationship as well, or that one NPC that has just been with your party the entire time because of a romantic relationship. This gives you uh, a really good chance. Um, I would hazard DMs against making these obstacles literal, physical, like, threats to their life. Right? It seems a little too easy and on the nose. It's too and- easy and on the nose. I would have definitely be something a little bit more existential with it, like... Um, we mentioned earlier the... But
1: Celestial has to give up their immortality. The whole interaction between Aragorn and Arwen
0: um, in Lord of the Rings, right? She's literally giving up her immortality to have a human life with him. That's massive. And like the uh, the downfall
1: with her father and like this is so iconic, so great to play. The next one is An Enemy Loved. This is not just when you have a crush on the bad boy at school or whatever Terry feels toward those leather-clad women who carry whips around. <laughs> this is when one person has fallen in love with their enemy and then is hated because they're in love. So this is when your bard falls for the succubus and the rest of the party figures it out. And the bard, not under a spell, says, yeah, but guys. And everyone else at the table starts screaming. Yeah, this could go bad.
0: This could go real bad. But at the same time, like it doesn't just have to be the bard You know, loving the succubus. It could also be uh, that big bad evil guy that used to be a beloved party member became the big bad evil guy and is now back to being an NPC and had that little bit of a redemption arc as well. That could be a thing too.
1: Well, we did a little bit with that big villain that I mentioned before that was at the, Mm -hmm. uh, the big bad evil guy for the entire campaign. Joined forces with you for a while. Yeah, he
0: was he was straight
1: up an ally until we got him possessed and walked him through the river sticks. Yeah.
0: Because fuck that guy.
1: Yeah, you guys really did pull a double cross on him. Uh-huh, yeah. So, before I move on, I have a quick question for you, Dan. We have been talking a lot about the intelligence behind these decisions. Traps are a great way of introducing obstacles or conflicts that are outside of... Social or combat encounters. Sure. Do you have a specific trap that embodies one of these? I mentioned earlier the landmine.
0: Yeah, yeah. Needing, yeah. needing to get diffused. Yeah, of, of course I do. Do we want to roll for it? Sure. I got an 18. Hey, I'm actually going first. I got a 16.
1: First. Yeah, there we go. Okay. Um,
0: <laughs> honestly, it the spiked pit trap, every single time I use that ends up being a self-sacrifice play for one of the players who has to usually sacrifice their own hit points to climb down or jump down the pit, cross it, and get back up the other side to attach a rope of some sort. You see that with pit traps. You see that with any sort of like rogue trying to disarm a trap will have the same thing. Like The
1: rogue always gets
0: blown up, right? Right. Uh, I played straight up the high perception rogue that did not have good disarming capabilities. Like I could tell what was going on, but I did I couldn't stop it. You were disarming in other ways. I you? was disarming in other ways. Uh literally well no I was dislegging oh. Megan. When you shot, shot her leg me. off. Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> um but we had another person in our group, Charlie, um, and he was playing like a mastermind rogue who had you know, expert lock picking skills. And we had this one like hallway where it was just a series
1: of traps. I was so excited for it as a DM. Yeah. And the two of you teamed S- up.
0: Yeah, we teamed yeah. up. I went, I see all the traps and all the things that are going wrong. And Charlie disarmed them.
1: Yeah. He focused on all of the social and then picked up the lock picking as well. Yeah. But couldn't find the traps in the first place. It was really frustrating. Um, you were talking about pit traps and whatnot. One of my favorite things is the door that's slamming down the blast door oh yeah okay and you've got to hold the door as a self sacrifice play Aww. for other people to to get through and get away i know i know i know oh the entire show went downhill after they revealed that hey i have a
0: series of opinions <laughs>
1: <laughs> let's let's move on though
0: <laughs> the rest of the podcast will be adam talking about season seven and season eight of game of thrones adam
1: oh i've got a lot to unpack here or are you actually going to let no, me know? No, no, I'm not going right, to let right, you I'm gonna know. Get, I'm going to get one point. Okay, one you point get only.
0: one Okay, you get one Game of Thrones
1: point. Okay, so this is big spoiler for Season 8. The way that Cersei and Jaime die, I think, was perfect. And I will fight people. Be- really? The weight of King's Landing crushing them in each other's arms is thematically beautiful. That is the metaphor that they deserved. Yeah, but Jaime it, had his whole redemption arc that was just, like, stopped. I think that that redemption arc was the misstep. I did not like him hooking up with Brienne. Really? Yep. Okay. Well, I, no, I, no, you want to know something? I think that it could have been absolutely fine if she realized after the fact that this was an infatuation and not true love and she had left him and he had gone back to, to Mary Podrick. Anyways, um, if you want to talk to any of us
0: about this, you could reach out to us on Instagram, Facebook, or, and this is probably the best place at r slash it's a mimic on Reddit if you want to go the old-fashioned way now, which is weird to think, you could send us an email at info at And any questions you send us there will get added to our mailbags for us to roll randomly on and answer in a crowd setting. Random bullshit like, what is the worst part of Game of Thrones Season 7?
1: Oh season my eight. god, I hope. I hope that we have enough to make one big D20 table of Game of Thrones questions. Yeah. I'm, I will jump in on that.
0: Yeah, today. or or uh, R.A. Salvatore,
1: Dritch Jordan questions no you're on your own that could just be the Dan table yeah i I guess that's true brad will be good adam doesn't give a fuck anyway a lot of what we've discussed so far has been about wanting keeping or losing an object person or ideal but you can take any one of these things and replace it with the concept of status and have a fresh new kind of conflict the next four items on the list are directly related to status and often pair nicely with something else we've already mentioned ambition if an object or status is difficult to get people can become trapped in a state of coveting it after all obtaining something easily just means you wanted something and now you have something ambition is when there is something you want but another force is acting as a gatekeeper while you try to get it this is often status although it can be love or items or objects or we've power. seen that yeah we've seen that in previous items on this list this is really about Stepping up. The Jafar of it all. Mm -hmm. This honestly is
0: the thing I use as the main motivation for my Big Bad Evil guys. Ambition makes it able for the Big Bad Evil guy to do anything to achieve his end goals. And I like that. However, I've also seen this destroy campaigns with the ambition being, let's remove the Slotty Egg, right? And they've got a Slotty Egg in them and, you know... It's weeks away from getting cut out, and, and we could deal with it. We've got a murder spree going on that we got to deal with, but that player was just like, nope, we're dealing with this now. And that ruined that campaign. It did. So, ambition
1: can be a double sided sword no matter how you use it. The thing about ambition that I want to say is power for the sake of power itself is all well and good, but even Littlefinger had an end game. What's your end game beyond I am king? What are you doing with
0: that crown? Exactly right. Like, uh, you, Vecna became a god not because he just wanted to become a god. Vecna became a god because he wanted to supplant the power of Orcus and rule death, Right.
1: And um, I'm sure he had a reason for that. Oh, an objective that he wanted to accomplish with the undead. This yeah. was the best route to get that. Your
0: your villains will feel so much more complex if you have an actually
1: grounded almost sympathetic almost sympathetic reason for their ambition the next one actually dan you segued nicely into this is conflict with a god i mean this one is pretty on the nose when a mortal challenges a god there are consequences sometimes this is presented as a conflict with the worshipers of the god and sometimes this is direct conflict with an immortal being and remember that not all consequences have to be bad Ah. Uh, Honestly, this is also the thing I do with, like, Archfey. If you're if you're
0: making deals with the Fey, that's w- where I have... If, if if the Fey factor into my campaign at all, they will have to deal with, you know, trying to garner information or a boon from Queen Titania or whoever. This also
1: is the deal with the devil, right? Yeah, and that's a really easy one to go with. I also look at it as the divine intervention. When the cleric prays over and over again to help us get out of this scrape and they do not get answered and then finally the god shows up just because you rolled well enough on your d100 or whatever it is yep and the cleric says why were you not here last time yeah the god can explain themselves this actually happened uh you're not a critical role
0: fan but i will bring up critical role here the character of the traveler being a god who is just an archfey who had just somehow gotten worshipers and built up this church and godlike powers because of the amount of people that is were. Is this worshiping the him. same
1: traveler from Eberron? Because there's a god no who's a traveler. No, this from... is this okay. is
0: purely a Matt Mercer thing. The reveal of the traveler actually coming in contact with a legit deity and going, I don't want this. And now this person who has been actively proselytizing this entire campaign about how the Traveler is great and everybody should just follow the Traveler. NASA sit there having her entire party and a full cult of the Traveler see him get cowed by a real god and the interest and fallout of that, right? The conflict of the god can be between a greater god and a lesser god, but your party has
1: to deal with that. It Yeah, this is specifically when a mortal... Is dealing with an immortal. Yeah. yeah, right, Or the representatives of an immortal. Exactly, yeah. And the obvious one again here is cult. Yeah. The next one is a little bit strange. Um, The next two actually go hand in hand. So this one is called Mistaken Jealousy. It's a bit convoluted to explain, but you see it all the time in workplaces and at high schools. One person is mistakenly envious of something they think someone else has. There's a reason that they think this. Whether it's merely happenstance or a person who is actively encouraging this jealousy. When a person acts on this mistaken jealousy or envy, they often make matters much, much worse. I mean, this is your good
0: old-fashioned mistaken villain trope storyline, especially when it comes within your party. Your party is being, like you see, one of your party members has wanted signs everywhere for crimes that are not his. That he did not commit, right? That's what you have
1: here with this as well. Kind of. See, you walked me into the next one, which is actually called Erroneous Judgment. All right, so this is a specific one very similar to the last one, except there isn't jealousy at play. It's judgment. In this case, a person passes judgment on someone else and the victim of the judgment is punished as a result. The mistake could be an honest one, but it's rooted in a definitive moment. If a third party sets up the judgment, it's usually because they are the guilty one who is trying to avoid judgment. That's
0: fantastic I actually had a player do literally this, where he straight up framed an NPC for all of the crimes that he was getting uh, called on.
1: Yeah, this is a really rogue moment, but yeah. also a big villain moment as well that we see, uh, especially the sneaky level of the Yuan-T kind of behind-the-scenes play. Mm-hmm. I picture a lot of drow society doing this as well. A lot of devils. Any Anytime you have political intrigue, this or is going to play heavily. Or anything. Yeah. But the mistaken jealousy, for example, can be something as simple as dragons with different sized hordes. And one of them is lying about how big their horde is. I said horde, Dan. There's a D on that. Okay. Anyway, wrapping up the list are the final three items that all focus on resolution. Resolution, of course, is just another way of saying final consequences. These all tend to be a dramatic response to something previous on the list. Remember, though, that a good resolution can be a springboard to the next story. And don't forget that we need to focus on entertainment value. Ending on a downer isn't always recommended, note to self. Yes. So the first one is remorse. Huh. This is something that everyone except sociopaths can understand. When we've wronged someone, committed a sin, and that's lowercase s, I don't necessarily mean a biblical sin, or betrayed a moral, we feel guilty. A lot of times regret, remorse, and the recommitment to values can result in forgiveness by other parties. Um, remorse is the motivating factor for 90% of my characters. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. How often do you see player characters apologizing? Oh, uh, depends on my tables. Uh, Some players will do it more often than others, but trying to force a player to do it who doesn't? is hard. You'll never get Dave to apologize. I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for the next campaign that, that we have lined up
0: uh, once, you know, in the after times, since we're in the COVID times right now um, for you to DM, because we're doing a one to 20 fresh brand new campaign. And, I have, like, in this guy's backstory, I've put in a bunch of little things because we haven't been allowed to roll them up, so I just have the character concept. I've put in a bunch of things where, as, like, little gifts to your DM, and I would encourage players to do this. Like, when you're writing a backstory, put in these little gifts to your DM where um, either I've wronged somebody in the past or I've lied about something or I'm currently lying about something in terms of, like, rank. And... You and your redemption storyline. Well, yeah, right? But, like... At level one, it's hard to do a redemption storyline. It's more like getting caught in the thing. Remorse is just something I always feel. So I inject it into my players.
1: Or into my characters. How is your... Uh, you injected into your players. So. <laughs> <laughs> Why did I show up today? Jeez. <laughs> All right. So the next one after that is recovery of a lost one. We spoke earlier about abduction. This is hopefully the next dramatic beat. Wherein we get our loved one back, and the drama that arises from a reuniting. Dan, talk to me about Mershi. I'd rather not. No, cause... no. Talk to me about <laughs> uh, before the tragedy. Yeah. Talk to me about that moment.
0: It was. It was really, really cool. Um, it was one of those things. Like uh, one of the things I like about this game is it introduces, if you are open to it, emotional experiences that you may not have a chance in your day-to-day life to experience. At least you see a shadow of them. So, uh, as I said earlier, Lockheed's entire storyline was, uh, he was a drunk, he was a uh, noir detective, right? Um, Who just so happened to be a gnome. And his entire motivating factor was the fact that the one bright shining light in his life, his daughter, was lost in this world and... Uh, we eventually figure out she's like in a sunken city in the one air pocket left and you know we finally go to save her and it it was this great moment of finally being able to like hug my daughter now this storyline came out like right after i started having kids and everything and it was super emotional but that
1: moment of finding her finally laying your eyes on her relief
0: beyond anything else, and you ran
1: forward and gave her a hug and there was this huge cathartic moment at the table dungeon masters don't just speed by that if you are another player at the table and you see this happen give that player the opportunity to really revel in this moment
0: yeah it's it's moments like that that breed great D. it's moments like what happened half hour after that that breed aggressive D.
1: <laughs> which brings us to our last point The loss of loved one. Fucking son of a bitch. (laughs) This is specifically the realization that the loved one is dead. The most dramatic version of this is when a character witnesses it directly in front of them, Daniel, especially at the hands of someone else. However, even just getting the news of it can be a dramatic thing in and of itself. Dungeon masters tend to use this when they don't have anything else to introduce or inject drama into the moment And I feel like that is a mistake every single time. Uh, And if that happens, there's often a
0: lot of backpedaling. And because this is a world where resurrection magic exists, we could resurrect them and they'll be fine. This isn't a Marvel movie. This isn't some sort of superhero comic book. Um, If they're dead, please keep them dead. Especially if they're NPCs.
1: Unless that is your entire subplot and you're going off for... It should be a
0: special thing for a resurrection to happen having Mershi murdered in his in in Lockie's arms directly after saving her from this feat. Well, right? not,
1: and not just her but her unborn Unborn child.
0: Well. Yeah. Yeah. Again, you son of a bitch. Um still like brings an emotional react- like let me let me be completely clear. clear. Uh Adam had cleared this kind of storyline with me. He had asked if that kind of thing would be okay. He took a bit of a chance because I said I don't like kid level stuff but Mershi was a fully grown adult and then Adam was like oh yeah she was also
1: pregnant Um, so I had an entire storyline by the way should I, should I reveal this I'm going to I had an entire storyline yeah the character's line, vampire lord now so no no no, no. where your character where Mershi was going to stay dead and you were going to team up with the father of the child for okay. vengeance and then decided at the last minute I'm not kidding on the drive in to revenant her instead and to keep it that personal and not have him be a character.
0: Yeah. I mean, it. I remember because we ended the session with Mershi being dead. And then there was like a two or three week break yeah. where I had to stew on that. And that just... You didn't talk to me for 10 days. Uh, yeah. Like straight up, hard no, I don't want to hear your voice. <laughs> I was mad. Um, but honestly, man, it, it, it bred such a great narrative experience for everyone at the table it's, it's a highlight of the campaign at least in my opinion I mean it was very self-focused as my character but even the other players will note how Mershi became such an integral part of the campaign
1: but we did this to everyone I mean Acra the wizard lost her best friend out of it yeah we had um, uh, Korra the paladin lost
0: her father's
1: spirit Her yeah the father's voice inside the uh, the ancestral sword who I, I mean the sword got broken His voice disappeared. Then she lost her god. She watched her god get raffle stomped in front of her. Yeah. And she lost her potential love interest directly before her eyes as well. Twice. Fuck you, Irvindale. And then Solomon Duke. Right? So this happened many times throughout the campaign. The idea of losing someone that you love. Yeah. For Solomon Duke, he decided to uh, fight a death tyrant by himself. At level eight... Well, okay, to be fair... No, you guys are like level 13. But to be fair, he'd already gotten his ass kicked by an archmage and was climbing down a rope while the rest of you were supposed to be at the bottom backing him up, but you had all fucked off down a corridor and he didn't know the Death Tyrant was there. Oh, yeah. So he got ambushed and then died. He was a player character. So that that one hurts Terry pretty personally. Yes, it did. So using the idea of loss of loved ones is a powerful tool. But what we're not talking about is the fact that this campaign lasted two years, and I did it five times in weekly 10-hour sessions. Yeah. Which means there is a very limited use of this, and I would really caution people to not lean on this one too much. This can be an effective tool, but it is also the sign of a lazy or inexperienced storyteller. Mm -hmm. Hey, everyone. This is Adam in the editing studio listening to this episode as we're going, as I'm going through and editing it. And there's something that I feel we were very remiss in saying. And I wanted to interject, just for a moment, a little something extra. Now, of course, Dan doesn't know I'm doing this, but he doesn't need to. What Dan doesn't know won't hurt him. So, one of the things that we talk about is the idea of collaborative storytelling and large character moments. We talk a lot about character moments of loss, not just hit points or attacking a character sheet, but of actually losing as a character, having tragedy strike. This is inherently a part of storytelling. You need odds to overcome. The reason that it works for us and it doesn't work for others is really based on the idea of trust. Now, for a lot of people, they end up playing with complete strangers online where there is no trust, and that Dungeon Master has to go with the default level of being a referee and having the trust given to them based on simply their role, or they've gained this trust because of the fact that they're all friends and have been for a while. I had a unique experience. When I started as a dungeon master, I had played D&D with this group of people that I didn't know for about six months, maybe seven. It was a great, rewarding experience. we just finished Curse of Strahd, and they handed me their reins with a little bit of trust, but I hadn't earned it yet. Later, when Dan and then Megan joined the campaign, it was brand new. I hadn't really seen Dan in about six or seven years. Not in any meaningful capacity, and I didn't even know Megan before she sat down to fill in as an NPC during half of a big, climactic narration finale. I felt the need to earn trust. I felt the need to prove that I, as a dungeon master, can be trusted with your characters. I did this by staying consistent. I really focused on the idea of appropriate consequence, both good and bad, and we often talk about the negative because it's the most memorable. But when discussing consequence, we do have to think about reward and outcome and whatnot as well. I got a lot of goodwill from my players and I'm so thankful for it. Later on, we introduced a player named Charlie into our group and it was during the last dozen or so sessions of a massive two-year campaign. And while he came to the table with all of these fantastic ideas for character backstory, I told him ahead of time, this is really not going to be about your character. Have fun playing, but we're going to wrap up everyone else's stories and then launch a new campaign. Now, I had some of Charlie's trust because we'd known each other for well over a decade. But at the table, when he would see harsh or cruel outcomes of things, because we're ramping up, we're getting to the big climax, the idea of everything hanging by a thread, he thought that I was being adversarial. He thought that because I had not earned his trust. There had not been the consistency either as a storyteller or as a referee. Now, it's very easy to say that someone who adjudicates rules Needs to stay consistent. We talk about this when we discuss our homebrew rules and making calls, especially with conditions and whatnot like that. But earning trust through storyline is important. Handing out the wins and the losses and making sure that they know that you are on their side gives you the ability to step forward and give them real tragedy and loss, and they will not blame you for it. But you as a dungeon master have to earn it. We told a lot of stories so far in this episode. We spoke about Dan's character Lockie and Mershi, his daughter, who he was looking for for the entire campaign, found her for one session, and then had her brutally murdered in front of him, her and her unborn child, then get raised as a revenant and then Dan supported her until he had to play the sacrifice move and become a vampire lord as a result. We talked about Akra, the wizard, losing her best friend to a death tyrant. We talked about our player Jamie's long-term commitment to ingratiating himself to an NPC love interest, then having a dramatic reveal that it was a brass dragon all along, and then a tragic loss as a result. We mentioned Terry and his emotional investment in both love and loss in this game. Megan had the loss of her father, love interest, and then another love interest, and then her left leg. We saw character rivalries that didn't extend beyond the game because there was this level of trust. Charlie and Dan working together to disarm traps was a beautiful moment that built trust between them. Megan's Paladin and our dragonborn wizard, Akra, both took an interest in Irvindale, the perfect half-elf, but they remained friends outside of the session. This is because of the trust that was built around the table. I cannot say enough how earning that trust is going to be so important to moving forward with some of these different plot lines, especially when dealing with things like love, loss, and betrayal. There's a common trope that says the moment that the first NPC double crosses your party, they will never trust an NPC again. You have to show them that this betrayal is earned. These plot points are earned, and that not every time is going to be like this one. Even though we existed in a campaign of moral ambiguity, there was always the idea of hope. They still won. It was always a win with an asterisk. We killed a death tyrant, but we lost Terry's character. We survived meeting Demogorgon, but we lost our beloved half-elf character. I got to reunite with my daughter, but she is undead and out for vengeance. Every one of the results, every one of these resolutions that we talk about, needs to come with the idea of springboarding forward to the next plot point. And that is one of the key ways to earn trust. Yes and no but. These are phrases you should learn as a DM. I am very thankful that I'm surrounded by such mature players who want to explore these themes and ideals. I give Dan and Terry and Megan a lot of shit on the podcast, but I have DM'd. The majority of the people that have been here, Dave, James, our mysterious voice behind Jed, and I like to think that I've earned their trust, at least to some degree, so that I could give them tragic story beats to focus on. One of the things that Brad always circles back to when he tells stories is about how Dan and I conspired against him and the rest of the party and my character betrayed everyone and killed half the party and left. I had known Brad for fewer than 20 hours of gameplay when this happened. And we weren't friends before we sat down at a D&D table together. And Dan was introducing the majority of that party to Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition while we were playing that campaign. And while we do talk about it and we poke fun at Brad about it, it has stuck with the majority of those players as a major betrayal because it wasn't earned. We've said a few times that that was a mistake. As cool as the moment was, in retrospect... It was pretty disheartening for the players. We're not perfect. Not by any means. And we're not expecting you to be perfect either. So when you take these plot points, think about building trust. We've provided nothing but conflicts this entire episode. Or resolutions that, for the most part, end on a down note, a negative. Give them the threat. Give them the conflict. Give them the issue or the problem or the puzzle or the riddle. And remember, they need to win. Let them be heroes. If you give them enough overwhelming odds enough times and they always come out on top, they will trust you the one or two times that they don't. Okay, let's get back to the episode. So, before we wrap this episode up, I've got a couple of questions for you. Let's grab our dice and roll. My first question, Dan, is which one of these plot lines sticks out to you as being something that you would like to explore in the future? Sure. I got an 18. I got half of that.
0: Honestly, um... I really want to play on the erroneous judgment. Like I said, I have this character who's got all of these things that happen in the past, whether or not they're real um, in this character's head, because he's a bard. By the way, my next character is a bard. Fuck. Uh, but I don't want to play the strummy music, happy storyteller bard. Just straight porn actor? No. I'm going to bard for very specific reasons that we will talk to off mic. There's a lot of these little aspects of... Um, I am responsible for these things, even if I didn't commit them based off of his culture that, he, that he's from, because he's from a shame-based culture as well. So, like, these allegations have been levied against me. I still must answer for them. I love playing on that thread. Um, also, with my current campaign, and I know some of the people who are in that campaign listen, all of Thundar's storyline, who is the storm sorcery hobgoblin, who used to be a pirate, all of his storyline with the, with the pirates and ha- his involvement in the death of an entire crew of a ship or many crews of ships. Man, like, being able to use this as a DM and as a player, this erroneous judgment, this this something has gone wrong and it may not necessarily even be their fault. I like, I want to play into that more. I think that's what I need to develop to be a better Dungeon Master.
1: The thing that I really want to dig into, the one that really interests me, is the enmity of kin. And that was the one where family members uh, or members of a close-knit group conspire against another member with malevolent intent. And this is really easy to pit party members against each other. I mean, you've done this. But no, the, the way that I would like to explore this is where you guys as a party are part of the conspiracy to take down the Order of Knights that you are a part of. Oh, okay. You know that the maybe through a prophecy, through nobody's fault, but the way things are going, something bad will happen. The kingdom falls, someone will die, something. You have to sabotage your own organization in order to properly move forward. I really like it. I don't have any plans for that, and it's not going to work in the things I do have plans for, but I really like the idea not of infiltrating the cult to take it down from the inside, but of being a part of uh, an order and then discovering that you have no choice but to sabotage it. And be the pariahs. Oh, I really like that. So my next question for you, Dan, is what additional advice do you have for a player who wants to explore these themes? Honestly, be
0: open with your DM. Think creatively about them. And don't just pick one. Find three or four that you can work a story around. Um, have, Have roots in them with your story. Try to think of the very real effects some of these conflicts or whatever they are will have on the physicality, the the emotion, the speaking pattern of your player before you even sit down at the table, right? I know we often sit there and be like, well, does he have an English accent or a Jamaican accent or whatever accent Dan's going to throw at us today? But like how you say something in an accent is one thing, but your stutters, your confidence in speech, your your other things will really help communicate your character's emotional state at the table, right? You can be Irish and quick speaking and confident. You could be Irish and slow to speak and haggard and you could be Irish and stuttered in speech and tortured, right? You're not going to be the happy leprechaun every time. Knowing what these uh, storylines did to your character to put them to where they are and how your character wants to resolve them will help generate you as a player your goals for that character as well. These just aren't things for DMs. A DM has to put together all of the creatures, the lore, the story, the plot, everything for the table. You as a player are just as responsible in the time away from the table to do your prep to understand how your character would react to certain things, where your character comes from. Just because you're not the DM doesn't mean you get to come to every session without having thought about your character's motives or goals or thoughts, gone over what his item selection is and what his plan is moving forward. Coming to the table prepared like that in some way, shape, or form brings the level of play at the game up exponentially for each player that does it.
1: If you are not playing that kind of D&D, if you are just there to slay goblins, you do you. Yeah. But if you're looking to have specific character arcs that you want to explore, if you're looking to talk with your dungeon master about, hey, I injected these three points into my backstory. I would like to explore them. This is the one that I'm the most interested in and whatnot. My big note for everyone is be patient. Remember that a dungeon master has between three and six people around a table on average. Sometimes it's a lot more they've got plot points that is either laid out to them in the published material or that they've been working on for months. And when you say, Hey, I want a redemption arc, understand that you're going to have to fall from grace a little bit. First, you're going to have to feel the weight of what it's like to be fallen from grace before you can build back up and get that heroic moment. And there may be baby steps to get there as well as multiple paths. And the dungeon master is doing this for every person around the table. Yeah. So Really do be patient and trust your DM. If you see five or six sessions go by, and I mean five or six four-hour sessions, if you're playing two hours a week, calm down, you're getting about three encounters yeah. at a time. So If then. Yeah, so <laughs> you will really need to be patient. You're going to run into that very occasionally. But if you are playing three to four hours uh, a week and you get five or six in, you haven't seen any development, just a little poke, just a reminder, hey, is this on your radar? And if they say, yeah, look, we've got to finish clearing this dungeon first, then go back and handle the hag. And then we're going to jump into that kind of thing. You're just going to have to deal with that. And that's fine. Yeah. Well, as a DM,
0: I find that I like to highlight a storyline at a time, right? I am not managing everybody's story. And I'll get into this later a little bit more in a minute. Um, I'm not managing everybody's storyline at once. I am highlighting yours, and there might be little tidbits for everybody else, but that player's storyline is the um, is kind of the goal right now. That's what we're in the thick of. So other players at the table, get okay with recognizing, get good at recognizing when it's not your highlight. Support your friend, support your party member, inject flavor in as it goes, but you're not the one who's developing your
1: plot line as the highlight right now
0: your friend is support them help them through it right and that's what's going to help here
1: do you have any additional advice for dms yeah
0: highlight one player <laughs> <laughs> oh, but but not at the
1: complete neglect of the others have that breadcrumbs why, that's why i wanted to give all 36 of these because yeah. you will be able to find character moments that are going to do three of the five characters at the table and as long as you're rotating different moments, and you don't know, one person may not bite and someone else may jump in on that. Mm-hmm. These are moments that you should be injecting in when you see the opportunity to help you find these character moments for the party. Every one of these things can happen during Horde of the Dragon Queen or Rhyme of the Frostmaiden. Yeah. Right? These can happen in Lost Minds of Phandelver if you can find a good opening for it. Dungeon Masters, don't inject it unnecessarily because remember, this is the thing about sparking imagination, about natural evolution, and about entertainment for everyone. Just because you want to have a Jafar character doesn't necessarily mean that that's something you can work into Death House. Yeah. But you can lay breadcrumbs and see who bites on that for Curse of Strahd. So there are a lot of different ways to look at story. This episode talked about the 36 categories that plot hooks fall into. And we mentioned a few times that a story strings them together. Join us next week when we look at a couple of other philosophies of storytelling which can help your games feel deeper and more dynamic. That's it for this episode of the It's a Mimic podcast. If you'd like to support us, we have a donate button on our website, www.itsmimic.com, and we also rely on word of mouth to get news of the podcast out there to the community. So please pass the word to everyone you know Though we're available on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube, as well as most podcast apps. Thanks for listening to It's a Mimic, where you never know what you're going to get. Thank you for listening to another It's a Mimic production. Inquiries, shout-outs, requests, and mailbag questions can be sent to info at itsamimic.com.
0: Okay, Adam, we've been talking a lot about plot devices and things to do with our stories, and I got to know, what is the one plot device story crutch that you just, as a dungeon master...
1: Can't seem to get away from. Sure, let's roll for it.
0: I got a natural one. Off to a eight, great start. Yeah. We changed the dice for this shit.
1: The one thing that I come up to over and over and over and over again, and I'm sure you will recognize this, Dan, is when you come into a brand new town and there's something that is a little bit off. It is always the mayor or the sheriff or the, oh yeah, okay, like the, the person, person of authority, power, the, the authority yeah. figure is the bad guy. Yeah, right. And that tends to be a trope that I just naturally lean on. I need to do better about that now that I think about that. <laughs> uh, for me,
0: I've mentioned the fact that I'm a lazy DM multiple times on this podcast. I mentioned that you're a lazy DM
1: too, Dan. Yeah, hey,
0: uh, and in group settings as well. Um, sometimes you lose the DM title as well, and, and I'm just lazy. The one plot device I seem to go with whenever I need to have some sort of drama is the the vague prophecy there'll be a vague prophecy I'll just throw that out there and that'll get my players going down a little trail for a little bit and I will make it up on the spot write it down and then figure out how to make it real later
1: that is how all prophecy should be
0: I did one where it's like uh there will be a betrayal and for the next three weeks my players have just been like all right who's gonna betray us and I'm like "Fucking, I don't know you're what, gonna what get an you? m- yeah. you're gonna get an NPC later and there's gonna be a betrayal and I'll just be like
1: there it was. Or it's going to be this this character is going to stab that character in the back to get that one item. You're like, "See? I knew it. I set that <laughs> up. Look at how great I
0: am." Yeah. Honestly, the the way I see this is not just, you know, hey guys, know your safe words, but also um my joke was knowing your safe words, and I didn't have anything to follow it up. Fuck. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you for listening to an It's a Mimic production. <laughs> okay, you're done. Get it. <laughs> <laughs>